Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. And you are joined today by myself, Jacob. Good morning, Jacob. And I'm Chloe. Um, good morning, listeners. 3CR is being broadcast from the land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. And we respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners, caretakers and custodians of this land. This land was stolen, it was taken by brute force, and sovereignty was never ceded. We join in solidarity with First Nations people's struggle for justice. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Okay. So um, to get into, uh, give a bit of a rundown of the show, um, we're going to be um, doing an interview with um, Callum Simpson, um, a worker at the University of Melbourne, which is currently going on a week-long strike. In fact, um, today is actually the last day of the strike where they're going to be actually meeting, um, where University of Melbourne meeting uh, members have been meeting and um, will be meeting and be discussing next steps, and to you members that is. And um, as someone who's kind of been to uh, um, the strikes, because um, I am actually, uh, I am a University of Melbourne student and I've been down on the picket lines and supporting the, the different actions and protests that have taken place for that week. I think it is a very kind of expiring kind of um, week of industrial action. And I think, you know, I'm very, um, I'm very interested in hearing from Callum on how the strike has gone and, you know, reflecting on some of the experiences and issues that are underlying it. Um, then we're going to be, um, we'll probably play a pre-recording of an interview um, with Christine O'Connell um, on solutions to the housing crisis. Um, so this is, was an interview that was actually done by Green Left's Isaac Nellis. And so we'll just be playing a, a pre-recording of it in the middle of the program. Um, and then we'll, um, um, and then we'll be interviewing Rebecca, um, from the Kukuzu community in Melbourne, talking about some of the issues, um, that have been happening in the state of Manipur in India. But first, um, I want to go, probably go into, um, I guess into some kind of news sort of headlines. Um, and I actually thought we'll actually report on some events we actually attended, um, in the past week. Um, so yeah, I gave, um, we probably won't, I won't give any reports on the NTU Melbourne Uni strike because, um, I think we want to, um, save the discussion for that for the interview. Um, but both me and Chloe, um, went, um, went along to, um, the, um, the, the Rising Tide speaking tour, um, building support for the people's blockade of the world's largest coal port, which is actually going to be happening from November 24th to November 27th. And, um, we actually had, um, done an interview with previously with, um, one of the organizers of, uh, of that blockade, but the, yeah, the Melbourne meeting, um, you know, featured a number, you know, a, a, a panel of, uh, of different kind of speakers, etc., which were talking about really the kind of the need to kind of build support and, you know, 
basically kind of making the case for why you should attend this blockade. And um, Chloe, you had any sort of impressions of the meeting that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think the meeting on Wednesday, I mean, Rising Tide is doing great work. And the meeting on Wednesday night was packed full of climate activists, people putting their hands up in the air when asked if they actually plan to come to the blockade. And you can see how, you know, the energy in the room, um, how excited people were about the action and hopefully we'll be attracting more climate activists through this campaign and strengthen the climate movement here. I even spoke to friends overseas and even they've expressed interest in flying down to Australia for the People's Blockade. And just for listeners who don't know about it, it's a peaceful action for our planet and future to protest against no new coal and for climate justice for a safe climate future. And, uh, you know, the, it's going to be the, you know, we're going to be blockading the world's largest coal port. It's going to be taking place on November 24th to the 27th of this year at Horseshoe Beach in Mulubimba, um, Newcastle, which is the land and water of the Awabakal and Warimi peoples. And at that meeting, we were shown a video of what it would be like. Um, it, it, it looks like a huge festival, doesn't it, Jacob? I mean, there's going to be live music, speakers. It's going to be a very inclusive event. So if you're a parent, um, you know, you want to bring your children along, there will be children's activities, food stalls, um, and plenty of kayaks there for you to borrow, or you can bring your own. And there will be safety boats as well. So it's really well organized and if you don't have a, a kayak, you can still, if you don't want to kayak, you can still join all the fun from the beach. And with this peaceful flotilla and, you know, people-powered action, we'll be stopping the coal ships for two whole days. So the coal coming out of Newcastle is about 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is very significant. And thousands of people will be participating in this action, it's going to be one of the largest civil disobedience protests for climate justice in Australia's history. So come along. And if you would like to sign up for the organising committee, just get in touch with Rising Tide through their Facebook page or their website. And they'll be running these speaking tours around the country because it's a national action. So please look out for the dates on where they will be next. I think the next one's in Canberra. So you can get the information from the Green Left events page by going to greenleft.org.au slash events. And, um, yeah, just to add a, a few things as well, um, one of the kind of exciting parts about about the tour, and you know, hearing from Alexa Stewart, who is one of the organisers of the event, is, you know, Rising Tide essentially... Their kind of plan is they want to make this as big as kind of possible, you know, mm-hmm. have as much mass participation. Uh, uh, so, like, they want, they're want they wanting to have up to 5,000 to 10,000 people, um, which I think, you know, possibly is a tour order. But, I mean, one of the things about these blockades and the nature of these protests is even if we had, like, a 1,000 to 2,000, that's still actually quite exciting. And, in fact, um, <laughs> when it comes to the actual blockade, um, you don't nece- they won't necessarily need 5,000 people to make the sort of blockade happen because um, I could easily imagine if this was a really big like a protest of 20,000 to 30,000 <laughs> you possibly they possibly um, might not even have enough kayaks to um, to cater for all those people and so in a sense you know having lots of people just hanging around the beach yeah. etc um, yeah there's a there's a real strong element of mass participation and also I think one of the things about this protest is um, 
you know, Rising Tide have this sort of vision that they see this as a bit of a kicking um, off point uh, for building a stronger client movement, and they're hoping to set the foundation for even more disruptive actions that happen in the, fo- um, the in the following year. Um, so I think, Theo, it's all part. I think it, you know this this is an important sort of initiative in terms of actually rebuilding and um, rebuilding the client movement because I think, you know, Adam Bant. Um, from um, Green's leader kind of made a number of observations as a speaker um, from from the meeting, you know, kind of spoke about how since the COVID um, pandemic, you know, we don't necessarily have a strong mass movement for the climate and there's not the, we don't have this the experience of what we used to have um, during the school strikes where we had tens of thousands of people marching on the streets. Now, that's actually not even reflected right now worldwide. Like, you know, it was very significant at the time that we were having very consistent sort of mobilizations. And Adam Bant sort of correctly kind of pointed out that, you know, in the context of, you know, the Labor Party in government, which is very much just a greenwashing government that is not committed to any real meaningful climate action, um, and in fact very much is just supporting and propping up the fossil fuel industry, um, without a sort of big mass sort of movement, you know, Adam Bant kind of pointed out that, you know, Labor can just sort of get away with whatever it's kind of in, whatever greenwashing or it's implementing or whatever coal, coal mines <laughs> that it's opening on an, any given day. So I think that was sort of quite an important sort of message that was seen about the need to kind of build a mass movement in the climate. And I think also Jeff Sparrow also made a sort of very good point as well, which is, you know, we don't need heroes. We need, mm. a, we need a mass movement of people. And, um, and I think, this is, uh, I think, a very important sort of contribution uh, to um, to support um, to um, achieving that sort of goal. Now, I guess the the other thing I just want to kind of mention in terms of um, headline news is um, probably listeners have probably just heard it all in the media, but uh, the voice to parliament referendum um, has been uh, has been announced um, for the fourteenth of October. Um, now this vote, um, this is, will be a referendum on an Aboriginal and Torres Strait, um, Strait Islander voice. And actually this is kind of like, um, the first referendum since, uh, 1999. Um, so yeah, basically it means on Saturday, October the 14th, you'll have to vote like you would normally vote in an election, but you'll have to sort of vote for a, a yes or kind of no option. But I guess just a few comments on this. Now, Within Green Left, um, within Green Left, um, we've actually attempted to, you know, cover a range of First Nation voices on this kind of issue of um, the voice to Parliament, and I think rightfully there has been some very clear criticisms from First Nations activists, especially those who are leaning or even abdicating for a, prog- a progressive sort of no position of. You know, they have been making the case that this is, you know, in a sense, it's a powerless kind of advisory body um, that actually won't actually mean any sort of meaningful advancement for First Nations rights. So I think, you know, within that sort of debate, that spectrum of opinion, we've been actually trying to cover all those sort of voices within Green Left. And if you look in greenleft.org.au, uh, you can look at our, our coverage on the voice to get, you know, a range of different sort of perspectives. And, of course, there's also been other positions put forward, like um, a critical um, critical yes position, which is probably the position I lean towards, which is, you know, those who kind of... It's a position of recognising, yeah, that the voice is very much doesn't... It's completely tokenistic. It doesn't represent any sort of meaningful advance. Um, but, you know, on the basis of the fact that 
a, a potential no victory would, you know, be a boost to the right who are actually using the Kate, um, um, using no to sort of, um, campaign, you know, to basically push their sort of right wing agenda. And it's also based on, you know, what, um, quoting from actually a Green Left article on The Voice, it pays into the sort of deep seated racism of Australia. But also, I, I guess at the other hand, you know, when you, in terms of making this sort of critical chance position, I think the position that sort of Green Left has attempted to sort of put forward is we, um, and uh, Green Left has sort of put forward, and one one article puts this um, put this quote, and we had an art interview with Peter Boyle about this. <coughs> but basically, that you know, this the official yes and no campaigns really, in a sense, both reflect a very sort of conservative kind of agenda that doesn't necessarily, you know, support First Nations sovereignty or any of the kind of concrete demands that. First Nations people um, have been fighting for. So, yeah, I think at the end of the day, um, within Green Left Radio, we're, we're going to try and hopefully capture the broad spectrum of voices um, from First Nations activists on on this on this debate, um, which, you know, I personally think is, in some sense, it's a, almost like a, quite a... My personal opinion is it's almost like quite a big kind of distraction from the actual real issues that we need to campaign. I think it's also a classic Labour party tactic that, you know, in the context of a very strong First Nations movement, um, where we've had these massive Invasion Day protests, etc., that, you know, the Labour Party can't even mean, can't even talk about things like change the date, but it's willing to sort of go to a whole referendum uh, mm. on whether we should have uh, a, a advisory body for First Nation um, for First Nations people. So I think there's a yeah, there's a lot to sort of critique and unpack here. All right. Well, I'm just going to go play um, a quick few announcements, and then we'll go on to our first interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. Free CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Free CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Free CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. 
And so we're very happy to be joined today um, by Callum Simpson, um, who is a worker at the University of Melbourne and a member of the branch committee for um, for the National Tertiary Education. Um, and we have Callum on today to have a bit of a kind of discussion about you know, how the current sort of industrial action that's been led by NTU members at the Melbourne um, University of Melbourne is going. So good morning, Callum. Good morning, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and um, thanks for um, coming on our program. Um, to kind of start off, Callum, um, this current this strike that's act, um, that's happening right now, being led by the NTU at the University of Melbourne in the past week, um, it's actually been described as you know the biggest kind of strike that the University of Melbourne has ever had, um, and that's even taken into account the fact that um, which you'll probably go into as well the the fact that not every it's not like a whole not every sort of university department has gone on strike has gone on the one week strike necessarily, but this is actually still being described as a bit of a historical land moment, especially since especially since the that um that. Sh- Famous strike where I think workers went on, um, went walked off the site for the eight-hour day. And I guess, can you tell us, I guess, how you know how this sort of past week has gone, and like how how has the strike sort of had an impact? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it definitely is uh, an incredibly historic moment uh, for our sector, and I'm hoping for the union movement. Uh, yeah, like we've basically been saying that it's the most uh, disruptive thing to happen on the University of Melbourne campus since 167 years ago where the stonemasons down tools, marched in parliament and kicked off the eight-hour movement. Uh, so, it ha- like, so this is quite big. It's like a return to form, maybe. Um, it also is uh, one of the biggest uh, actions that any anyone in the National Tertiary Education Union has uh Taken in the union's about 30-year history, so yeah, it's it's really quite historic. And as, as you said, uh, we we actually haven't had every single person, every single work area on strike this week. Uh, the strategy this time has been um, essentially everyone went for a strike on Monday this week, and we took a big group of 850 workers to the Raymond Priestley Admin Building and. You know, at our stay right in front of uh, right in front of the vice chancellor's office. Uh, but then the rest of the week has sort of been led by uh, some groups down at the Faculty of Fine Arts and Music, uh, student services workers like myself, libraries and scholarly services, law, and the arts faculty. And the whole thing was kind of led by the arts faculty, where they've been organising a wage theft campaign for years, and they really pushed for a week long strike, and others sort of followed. And yeah, since then we've um, kept up pickets at law, at student services. We've um, we've tracked. Yesterday we tracked down uh, the the, uh, the university executive's secret meeting, and we went and had our say outside there. And then some workers had a almost ten minute conversation with Vice Chancellor Duncan Maskell as he tried to leave the building out the back, uh, and you know, didn't quite get him on any commitments, but. He was speaking publicly about the fact that they do want to decasualise eventually. So, yeah, it's been quite the exciting week so far. Yeah, it sounds exciting, Callum. This is also uh, Chloe on the call here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chloe. Would you be able to tell our listeners and us maybe some of the issues impacting on university workers, which has actually been, you know, which has driven the strike, and also maybe talk about some of the your key demands of management. 
Absolutely. Uh, there is, a, frankly, a litany of them. Uh, but one thing that we keep talking about is just how much uh, casual, how casual the workforce is. Uh, like up to 70% of the University of Melbourne workers are casual or fixed-term contracts, so they are insecure work. And I myself, in, during the pandemic, experienced being, experienced being let go at short notice. So I really know that, like, not having secure work, not having an ongoing contract is a, uh, is a big issue for uh, workers in our sector, and it's, it's growing all the time, so we really need to turn that around. Uh, in terms of what we have been demanding, uh, about two years ago, the union uh, branch spoke with as many of its um, members as possible, did a, did a good, chance, uh, did a good uh, survey, and pulled it all together into a a proposed enterprise bargaining agreement and 81 claims of what we wanted to see. Uh, however, we summarised that into six key claims, which were a about 15% pay rise to get us above inflation and 80% secure job target in the length of the uh, agreement. Uh, provisions for manageable workloads, restrictions on restructures, uh, working from home rights and better parental and carers leave. Now, so far, we've gotten uh, most of the pay offer and we've gotten some of the, uh, most of the parent and carers leave and some gender affirmation leave and stuff like that. But the vast majority of our key claims go unanswered. So basically, the university has said that they are willing to bargain again after our brief hiatus of the couple, last couple of weeks. And so there's going to be six bargaining meetings of the next fortnight. And that will be their chance to show us that they're willing to move on our key claims. Otherwise, uh, well, the vibe down at the picket is uh, we'll come back and we'll do this again. Hmm. Um, I, I want to ask the kind of next question, and I just also might just add one extra sort of question to it that I didn't, sure. um, that is got, that just came to my mind, um, because I kind of heard it kind of mentioned by, um, Jeff Sparrow when I, um, when he spoke at the Rising Tide yeah. meeting on Wednesday. Um, but one, one, the first thing though is one delegate at the strike, um, told me that, um, you know, I want to kind of hear a bit more about this sort of 80% secure work target. Um, because I think there's a, there's a, the delegate kind of told me that I spoke to, you know, told me that, you know, very much this would fundamentally change how the university is run. And I guess I want to kind of hear some of your comments on that. And I guess the second kind of question, if you're able to sort of answer it is, um, in terms of your kind of industrial action, um, what has been sort of the impact of some of the kind of anti-union laws on your strike? Because what Jeff Sparrow me- uh, mentioned at the meeting in the context of, you know, trying to make a comparison between uh, between the right to strike um, and also the right to protest for climate is that um, there was one practical concrete case where um, I think fair work kind of restricted um, one... L- um, restrict Because I think there was a... Um, the NTU of Melbourne University were kind of potentially pushing for a ban on marking or not marking, and that was sort of ruled out of order uh, because it would be considered too disruptive. So I want to kind of hear your comment on those two sort of aspects. Sure, absolutely. I might take the second first before I forget it. Uh, I'm, yeah, I think pretty sure the uh, the case that uh, Jeff Barrow is uh, referring to there is this 2013 uh, commission hearing uh, between uh, Monash University and their and the NTU, and uh, now I'm I don't have a full legal analysis, but 
what I understand to have happened is that the branch committee was stri- uh, the branch was striking during the assessment period, and this was having an impact on students. Now, now they had created something called an exemptions committee that allowed students who had particular needs, they really like needed to graduate or you know something to have issues with their visa or stuff like that, to make it through basically to work their way through the blockade so that they wouldn't be extremely impacted. Now the university, of course, uh, the university, of course, uh, refused to participate in this exemptions committee, and then had the gall to go to the Fair Work Commission and use the Fair Work Act to say this is an undue impact on uh, the welfare of our students. Uh, those students testified, only uh, some a couple of counsellors, and just on the basic idea that maybe students might be feeling extra stress around exam time, the Fair Work Commission struck it down. Um, now, I haven't heard of a similar case using the same uh, using the same part of the Fair Work Act, but the fact that the Fair Work Act has such a provision and also has provisions for similar similar uh, similar anti-union action in the case where the economy is impacted, well, it, it's it's frankly bullshit. And uh, yeah, the Fair Work Act is not uh, worth the paper it's written on. Um, so I think it's a, a testament to the union to have sort of despite all the bureaucratic steps you have to get through to get to the stage where we're at a week-long strike. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's not been easy. And there's more stuff, like there's um, the particular restrictions on meetings and voting that is a burden on organisers. And um, I did speak briefly on the 80% work target, but, yeah, I agree that it would, with that delegate, it would fundamentally change the university um, I'm professional staff, and it would change my life. Uh, well, I, I now have an ongoing contract, but even a year ago I didn't, and it would have changed my life. But some people have been talking a lot about uh, how it would really change uh, how academia works. If you had uh, tutors who had actually, actually had a research allocation, so they weren't just doing their research in their own time, you'd actually improve the way in which studies are, are done and and the kind of job security and you'll keep the best academics at university instead most young academics even into their you know 40s and 50s uh flit around from university to university from contract to contract often working just six months or 12 months at one place and it impacts on them but it also impacts on their teaching and their research so i think if we had a, a university where secure work was the norm and flexible work was only used as an alternative where it was absolutely necessary, then that would be uh, a better university, a better educator, a better researcher, and would be a really great example, uh, essentially to the rest of the country, that you can, you can achieve like flexible workplaces with secure contracts. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, I think what you're sort of talking about there is actually I think it's actually sort of like something um, you know our program should actually explore a bit more in more detail um, because I think <laughs> actually just um, one thing I remember hearing uh, in terms of like this whole word of sort of restructuring um, there has been in the past and I'm not sure what particular university it was it might have been the Victoria University actually but basically. Uh, 
universities' management on this whole issue of uh, secure work, but also this whole issue of um, research um, allocated to academics. Because um, you know, one of the one of the, from my understanding, one of the situations with um, a lot of academics is you have all these sort of casual sort of tutors, um, and you know they don't necessarily get much opportunities to do much research. Um, and of course, um, and, and one of the one of the other issues is the universities have managements have been trying to figure out a way of um, of bypassing that. And I think one solution I remember being put forward. I don't think this was put forward from Melbourne University, but I think they are trying to think about restructuring university in a way where, okay, well maybe instead of having academics, we just have positions for tutors where that's what they do. So we just create new teaching positions and, and so in a sense um that um you actually take the academia out of academia and you basically just hire um people on the basis of okay they'll just teach these tutorials and teach these sort of classes and that's actually yeah that's i think yeah that's definitely something i think we have to kind of explore more detail what universities major doing because i definitely remember hearing an example of universities attempting to kind of Push, push that kind of um, restructuring of work itself at the academy, and it's all driven uh, to make more profits uh, for the university and management. Yeah, and if I might add, might add one little bit there is that the University of Melbourne, having committed to doing some decasualisation, they, uh, but not doing it with the union involved in the process. We've been hearing all kinds of horrible rumours about like what that might entail, and one idea that apparently was tabled was this that essentially some faculties would move away from the lecturer tutor model and only have seminars and essentially this would like that would be their way of getting rid of casuals by just like removing the work but it would absolutely uh, ruin the pedagogical model it would make the place really bad for teaching Hmm. yeah uh, thanks Callum Um, I guess with the casualization of the workforce in general, we've we've experienced an increase of anti-union laws, and you know, successive governments have made it more and more difficult for workers to strike, um, for workers to even meet, and you know, workers can feel pretty intimidated, um, particularly if they're precarious workers with less rights, like like casualty, like casual tutors, and mm. there has been a weakening of the union movement, um, and less workers willing to take. Industrial action. So, in the lead up to the industrial action, what can you tell us about some of the growth that's happening in the union uh, that has occurred in the past year, especially in some of the key departments driving the strike? And also, you know, let us know about what inspiring lessons it it can offer to unionists. Absolutely. Uh, like speaking, I think, on behalf of branch committee, because we keep saying this to ourselves, we have been. Uh, wonderfully surprised by just how much everything continues to grow. Uh, we're now over 2,500 members. We're now the largest branch in the NTU. Uh, it's still growing. Like there was a hundred, like hundreds of members just joined last week before the strike. Um, I don't have more details, but like it's, it's been like surprisingly big. And, um, uh, What's been nice is that uh, I've actually noticed a little bit of growth uh, this week. So we've had some people sort of like uh, kind of, you know, having the FOMO of uh, the fear of missing out on things and have joined the union halfway through the strike 
and gone, yeah, I want to come out. I want to be with my colleagues. And so that's actually happened a bit on the on the floor that I work in. And so honestly, that and then there are a couple of those people who joined halfway through to deliver yesterday this amazing speech about the importance of student services and the importance of uh, that work. Uh, it brought tears to people's eyes. It was it was incredible. Um, I think part of that, the big lesson there is that uh, action breeds recruitment. Every time we've done something this year, whether it's been a half day, a full day strike, whether we've you know gone to open day and disrupted that, uh, we've always seen more people get involved and more people join the union. So, like, I think it suggests uh, this kind of like radical hope. You've got to keep pushing. You have to keep doing things. And the more you do, the more people will be inspired by that and join. Uh, it's going to be a lot of work to keep it going, but I, I really have a lot of hope for it. Uh, other lessons, I think, uh, I think one thing, just the fact that we could, uh, uh, we can't be outsmarted by, by the bosses. Like every, every time that they try to have a secret meeting or they try to like use underhand tactics, we find out about it. Like uh, we have deep roots across this campus. Uh, the um, yeah, no, like we just like yeah. I think the union's really strong. Has you know, although it's not a majority one, has deep roots on the campus, and using that to our advantage is is really great. All right. Well, yeah, that's very kind of inspiring to kind of hear. And I guess um, we're kind of getting to the kind of end of the interview. And I guess, um, do you kind of have any kind of final comments that you'd like to make, Callum? Yeah. One thing I wanted to say was that it's not just been University of Melbourne this week. Uh, both Swinburne and RMIT have gone on strike uh, this very week uh, for different lengths. And Monash and RMIT, I believe, have recently voted for more protected action. Uh, so... It is really uh, inspiring that they keep growing. And I would just encourage your listeners, if you know, if they have deep pockets or whatever, um, like we are trying to... Uh, obviously, we're not getting paid for our strike week. Uh, we're trying to cover some of the expenses people have uh, with the National Strike Defence Fund. And so, like... Uh, <clears throat> it's one of the ways that you can help keep the strike going. Uh, well in the future, uh, both here and other campuses, is the name that strike fund and looking after workers who are pushing back against their management. Uh, and otherwise, if you're interested in our campaign, whether in donating or just reading up on it, uh, it's all on unimelbebanow.com. Well, thank you very much, um, Callum. And yes, all the solidarity um, with um, with the rest of your strike, um, from our understanding, um I just saw it sort of on face social media by one NTU member at Melbourne Uni. Um, I think your the plan is um, that you're going to be kind of all coming together to kind of discuss the next steps, kind of following this strike. And so, yeah, all the best with um, with uh, with your your continuing struggle against the management of University of Melbourne. Yeah, thanks, Callum. Really great chatting to you and solidarity to you and all the workers. Don't get outsmarted by the bosses, and <laughs> we hope you win all your demands. Thank you both so very much. All right, thanks, Callum. All right, you're listening to um, Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and we're just speaking to Callum Simpson from the University of Melbourne. Um, 
an, an NTU branch member who's currently part of a week-long industrial kind of strike. Um, we'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nesssolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And we are going to play a song. But before we do, I'll just introduce the song. It's it's called Growth and it's by Natani Means. And we've we've got it from Matt Ward's music column in Green Left, new, 10 new albums that express anger at the world. And Matt writes about this new album from... From rapper Natani Means was released on August 20th and it addresses the oppression of indigenous people worldwide. And it's about the son of renowned um, American Indian activist Russell Means, who was shot with rubber bullets and beaten while protesting against the Dakota Access Oil Pipeline. And he still suffers post traumatic stress disorder from that attack. So this album growth is about his journey in dealing with that. Hope you enjoy. See the morning star rise, I say a prayer Tobacco in the sky, creator, do you see me here? My people suffer constantly, what the spirits want from me I need to know now before we live through a prophecy So many have lost belief in our ways, this I know Trying to figure out which way to go, I'm losing hope I say goodbye to the person that I was before Trying to find growth, trying to find growth Let me be honest, I'm trying my hardest And when the bill comes, don't worry, I got it, uh. This native kid, he ain't made shit 
trying to do my best to make a statement. Half mile north of churches, that's my address. Got the earth in my blood, and that ain't past tense. Now I'm in a villa with your girl doing backflips. That's what happened, I made some money rapping. I know you see me for who I am, but don't get lost. Reservation raised, I grew up right across the wash. Heard them nights that my mama cried in her home. She had to leave the rest, cause she's scared of living alone. Both her sons out in the world, and they're doing numbers. My brother called me and reminded me to remain humble. Lost some friends on the way, I'm just trying to function. Live with our demons and die inside our dysfunction. I stay running to the east, don't you see? Praying that one day I do what's right for me. This is everything I know, everything I know. I give it all to you, trying to find growth. Grow, 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 growth, grow, grow, grow. Growth, everything I know, everything I know. Uh, I give it all to you, trying to find growth. They know, they know, I'm losing hope. I find my way up on this road. Don't cry for me when I am gone. I fall apart and find my home. Overdoses and car crashes, I don't need to hear it. Suicides and drunk driving, it takes a spirit. Tragedy is common in our life. That's why I take our stories and I put it in this mic If not us, then who else gonna care? Yeah, 2021, I'm still rocking this long hair Shed a tear for the ones that couldn't be here Warrior in my blood, I face it all with no fear Sometimes you break down and come back together That's why we put prayers in these eagle feathers Ain't no one here in us except maybe yourselves One day all our stories might make it out I stay running to the east, don't you see? Praying that one day I do what's right for me This is everything I know, everything I know I give it all to you, trying to find growth Grow, 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 growth, grow Grow, grow, growth, everything I know, everything I know, uh, I give it all to you, trying to find growth. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855AN. And actually, can you repeat what the song was? Because that sort of disappeared from my screen. Uh, yes, it was Growth by Natani Means. All right. Um, so the next part of the program is um, I'll just go, actually, I'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. <laughs> Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. All 
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we're going to be playing an interview with um, Christine O'Connell, um, Solutions to the Housing Crisis. Um, to give a bit of background to this, um, just reading from um, the page on Green Left, which has this interview, house prices and rents are rising at unprecedented rates. The Anthony Albanese Labor government claimed at the National Cabinet meeting that he had struck a deal for the most significant housing reform in a generation, but Labor is not investing in public housing and there are questions about whether these reforms will have any impact. Um, so Green Left's Isaac Nellis spoke to Christine O'Connell from the Antibody Centre about the housing crisis, what Labor is doing and common sense solutions. So I hope listeners enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. So... We're in the midst of this housing crisis uh, with rents and house prices and everything skyrocketing. At the same time, uh, the cost of living going through the roof. Uh, and in New South Wales alone, there's 60,000 people, almost 60,000 people on the waiting list for public housing. And there's millions more people around the country who are struggling. Um, so the response from the Anthony Albanese Labor government has been pushing this Housing Australia Future Fund bill uh, and... They've also hailed uh, this recent uh, national cabinet meeting uh, that has sealed, uh, gotten a $3 billion deal uh, with the states, as, and they're trying to call this the most significant housing reform in a generation. Um, so I'm here with Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre, and we're going to talk about uh, what Labor is offering and what the other solutions that uh, should be on the table um, so I guess I'll start by asking uh, what the National Cabinet has offered to renters um, facing these unprecedented and unaffordable rent increases. Yes, I think uh, of all the depressing things, Isaac, one of the most depressing is that it's probably true that this is the most significant reform, despite the fact that it does basically nothing. And, uh, you know, I think, like, when we look at the actual substance of what's announced, as Dr Chris Martin from the University of New South Wales has pointed out, um, it is essentially announcing things that most states and territories already have in place. And the things that have been announced, even where they aren't already in place, aren't going to make a meaningful difference. And we know that because they're already in place <laughs> in so many um, parts of the country. So uh, things, for example, like limiting rent increases to once a year does not actually limit rent increases. Obviously, everyone who rents knows that. Uh, I copped a $90 a week increase last year, and uh, the fact that it was more than 12 months didn't really make a difference to my capacity to pay that. Um, we've also seen uh, you know, talk of no uh, evictions for no grounds evictions, but again, that's really extremely loose definition. And ultimately, if your landlord decides that they don't want you there, they can simply say, uh, "I am thinking about selling my house, or I want mm -hmm. to renovate it." Um, and again, the under underlying problem with all of these tweaks is that renters don't have any ability to assert our rights, and so it doesn't actually matter what regulation is in place if the onus is on tenants to hold landlords and real estate agents to account. And that's the thing that they haven't talked about at all. Mm. Okay, so one of the big discussions that's been going on is, is around rent controls and rent freezes, <coughs> uh, particularly the Greens have been uh, talking about it, uh, Max Chandler-Mather and, and others. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of pushback. Um, so I guess 
Why are the federal and state governments so against uh, implementing rent mm. controls? Um, governments are cowards and they are also beholden to the property industry. People often lay the blame um, at the feet of politicians and say it's because they are landlords. I think that's only a tiny, tiny part of the issue. Ultimately, they want to uphold the structures that are in place because that's how they stay in power. Um, the rent freeze idea is not a particularly radical one in my view. Uh, we've been copying such obscene rent increases that for me and lots and lots of people like me, a rent freeze doesn't really help because we already can't afford to live. So what we've been talking about at the Anti-Poverty Centre is the idea that we actually need a retrospective um, rent cap that should mean that people who have imposed unfair rent increases have to unwind them mm. and that you know, everybody talks about, oh, well, the market will collapse, which whether or not we think that's a bad thing or not, um, there are lots of ways to make sure that people are protected. So if a landlord has taken on an irresponsible level of debt, instead of forcing someone on a low income to subsidise them and their wealth building, then the government should say, we will buy your property, we will guarantee that tenant's right to stay in that property. So everybody wins. Um, there's... This conversation about rent cap is, is being had in isolation and it's ignoring the fact that there are actually many levers that need to work in concert in order to protect tenants and also, uh, I suppose, to prevent the kind of catastrophe that people are trying to say will unfold if we just had a rent cap. Mm, yeah, one of the arguments they're kind of pushing is that the rent control will have an impact on the housing supply, so there'll be less rentals because you know landlords won't be investing in property and things like this. Um, so a lot of the, the federal and state government solutions to the housing crisis uh, are trying to address kind of housing supply as the core issue. Um, but what kind of measures are they introducing around this and will they have any kind of impact on the housing crisis? Mm. Um, there's a real lack of sophistication in the conversation about supply. So more homes is not going to improve affordability, and it hasn't in the past. So over the same period, um, up to 2016, where we saw the number of households increase by 10%, the number of dwellings increased by 12%, and yet during that period, rents far outstripped um, wages, for example. So we know that just having more houses does not actually improve affordability. It's all about what type of houses there are. And right now we have no supply of houses that can we can afford if we're on a low income. So um, what we actually need, obviously, is a really massive investment in public homes. That includes buying existing homes and adding them to public housing stock. Even so, those things can't be done overnight, um, and that's why private rental market regulation is so important, and particularly for people on the very lowest incomes, those of us on welfare payments need higher welfare payments because at the moment uh, we can't afford to eat or pay our bills because we're desperate to pay rent so that we don't become homeless. Um, yeah, I forgot the original question. I was like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I meant to come back to it, and then I got derailed. I just, derailed myself. Just on uh, <laughs> how are they trying to increase the supply? Oh, like, right. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah. So... Uh, Property developers are going to have a picnic with the way the government wants to approach this problem. Um, they obviously just want to see more land opened up so that they can have more land banked. That doesn't provide anyone with a home. Uh, it does allow them to increase their profits both on homes they're already building and homes that they will build far into the future. Um, it is something that's also getting uh, community housing providers very excited because those organisations are no longer genuine community organisations. They're not community controlled. They are just becoming another form of corporate landlord. Um, 
um, and they are asset-driven organisations um, that, again, want to see approvals for development, want to be able to change the types of tenure that they have on the property they own, um, and ultimately all of this, again, without... Um, an expansion of public housing and tight restrictions on private rental regulation and bringing community housing uh, rules into line with public housing rules is not going to solve the problem that we're in. Mm. So, yeah, you've mentioned um, public housing as being a really important part of the solution uh, to the housing crisis. But within this National Cabinet plan, there's not really any significant increase in public housing as mm. part of it, despite, you know, the calls from grassroots campaigners and, you know, housing experts and, and things. So why are the government so hesitant to invest in public housing as a, a solution to the housing crisis? I think um, Anthony Albanese doesn't want the rest of the country to realise or remember how good public housing is, actually. <laughs> um, public housing benefits us all, and it should be an option that every person has, regardless of their income. Um, but again, it does not serve the interests of the people who currently control the property market if there is a viable alternative for those of us who either don't want or need to own our home and don't want to be um, subject to the whims of a private landlord. So there's no financial incentive for the government to do it. There's no, um, in their mind, there's no electoral incentive because they think that being aligned with the most powerful people in society is the fastest way um, to success. Mm. But I don't know, I'm not one to generally be hopeful, but I think, I suppose they're pushing us to and beyond breaking point to the degree that I think people more and more are realising that the status quo absolutely cannot help and I think they can't deny the importance of public housing for much longer. And I think the concession that they did make a couple of months ago on providing $2 billion to states for things like maintenance um, and some new public homes is a real sign that they do feel the pressure. It's nowhere near enough, but it does show that with keeping up that community pressure, we may be able to get more. Probably not enough, but more. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good that, that there's some kind of potential for some wins uh, going forward. I guess in that context of that, and uh, in the wake of the kind of national cabinet meeting um, and, uh, as you mentioned, some of the concessions that have been uh, granted with the, around the Housing uh, Future Fund and things like that, um, should the Greens and, you know, other independents uh, now kind of support this bill or what kind of uh, uh, steps should they be taking um, going forward? Look, our position is that the underlying principle that the HAF is based on is um, fundamentally flawed and it is dependent on ever-growing property values and marketization of property and there's no uh, way to design it that actually means it should pass, that means that that money would be better spent on something like the half than directly on public homes. Um, but also at the same time, it's so insignificant that we don't care. Pass it or don't pass it, it doesn't matter. It's not going to do enough. We need to actually focus on winning the real things. And every discussion, you know, every bit of energy that we use debating about the half is energy that is a waste when it should be being used on really pushing this case for public housing um, and talking about actual rental, private rental reforms that would really help people, not just you're allowed to have a pet or, mm. um, you know, we'll give you the opportunity to go to NCAT if you are less fearful of being kicked out of your rental, which you aren't because there's not enough private rentals. <laughs> yeah, so there's, a, there's a, I guess, grassroots kind of housing campaigns going on in, in across the country in different ways, in different contexts. Um, here in uh, Sydney on Gadigal Land where we're recording today, 
Um, there's been a recent announcement around this Waterloo South uh, state that was a big part of the kind of discussion around housing in the New South Wales elections. Um, could you tell me kind of what the latest updates are around that? Yeah, it's um, it's devastating to see the folks who've been fighting to defend their homes for such a long time now, since 2015, uh who had put all of their hope in a change of government because the people in this government told them that their homes would be protected have you know have them so- have been sold out and it's i suppose not super surprising to see this happen um, but it does again show just the extent to which politicians are completely captured um, by private interests and We now have politicians that a few months ago, people like Rose Jackson, who was saying we will not knock down public homes, we will not, um, you know, we will protect public homes, is now saying we have to knock down these homes because we need to put more affordable and community housing here. And she's using people like me as a weapon, right? She's trying to say that folks like me who are suffering unaffordable rents in the private market and are years and years away from getting access to public or community housing are the reason that thousands of current public housing tenants need to lose their home. Mm. And they rely on us not realising that they can simply put more public housing somewhere else, (laughs) (laughs) like anywhere that's vacant or buy private property and put it back in public hands. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's... Horrible to see that this government now appears to be uh, doubling down on what the coalition's plan was, pushing ahead with privatising this incredibly historically significant public housing site. So much social cleansing has already gone on in Redfern, particularly um, for Indigenous folks who've been pushed out. And, you know, we're being sold this idea on the grounds that apparently we need social mix. But in practice, it is social cleansing. It is getting rid of poor people, it is diluting our presence so that we can learn from our betters. And mm. um, it's really based and grounded in a lot of prejudiced ideas about what people on low incomes need and what we can contribute. Um, but it is also ultimately just about buying into the propaganda that the property industry is pushing. Mm, 100%. And it seems like they uh, kind of market it as, oh, well, we've got a slightly better percentage of social housing than the coalition's plan, so that means we're doing a great job without actually taking into consideration there's a whole bunch of different options for, uh, you know, renovating public housing and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, just to touch on that uh, kind of alternative options, uh, we've seen some kind of uh, alternatives presented uh, for the public housing estate in Barrack Beacon in Port Melbourne. Uh, and I know there were some alternatives around the uh, Wentworth Park Road um, estate as well. Um, could you just uh, briefly explain like what some of these ideas are and what, what they would mean for the tenants as well? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward stuff, right? The idea is if you have an older home that you as a government have failed to maintain, <laughs> that you should simply maintain it, uh, repair it, keep it and not um, kick people out of their homes, allow that community fabric to remain strong, um, and then you'll spend less money. You can then take those funds and invest them in new public homes on other sites. Or in the case of Wentworth Park Road, there is actually space to put new public housing on that site without uh, knocking down the dwellings that are already there. So there are so many options, and I think, again, that just really demonstrates... um, 
the level of commitment to this ideology that we can't have um, communities of public housing tenants living together. Um, there are these really, I think, what most people would call common sense options that are being rejected by governments around the country in favour of privatisation. And we have seen uh, rampant privatisation, including through community housing over the past several decades, and this is where we've landed. So we're only going to see more of the worst of where we are if this trend continues. Mm, yes. Uh, I guess the other thing I was going to ask is... Uh uh, obviously, the Anti-Poverty Centre does a lot of work around housing and, and things like this, but also a strong focus on, you know, uh, welfare um, and raising the rate of JobSeeker and Youth Allowance and DSP and other payments, and also uh, uh, making it better conditions so people don't have to deal with things like mutual obligations and that kind of thing. Um, uh, and how this kind of relates to housing, other than just the fact that you need money to pay for housing and a lot of people are relying on welfare, um, there is the conversation around the rent assistance um, as a solution. Uh, let's just increase rent assistance, and then people will be able to afford to live. Um, uh, what are the kind of the problems around this, and and why is that not a solution? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, there are lots of problems with the way Commonwealth rent assistance is designed that make it not a very helpful payment for the people who receive it. Some of the people who qualify for it don't actually even receive it because 100% of a Commonwealth rent assistance payment goes to the landlord if your landlord is a community housing provider. Um, the way that... I'll get a little bit technical and you can just cut it out. So <laughs> the way that rent assistance is calculated means that for every $10 more that you spend in rent, you might get $7.50 in rent assistance. But then that amount is capped. So you can't get more than $75 a week. Um, so I don't know about how, how many folks out there listening are paying kind of anything close to $75 a week, but I imagine the last time rents like that were readily available was probably before I was born. <laughs> um, so you don't get enough. You have to spend more to get towards um, the maximum. There's another real problem with the way it's calculated because you have to spend a certain amount of rent before you can get any rent assistance, and that minimum threshold is indexed, which means every six months the amount of rent you have to be spending to get rent assistance goes up. So 300,000 people who every six months they actually get less rent assistance because of the way that works. Right. Um, ultimately, Commonwealth rent assistance just sets welfare recipients up to be a money laundering device for private landlords at the moment just through welfare recipients who receive Commonwealth rent assistance. The government is transferring about $15 billion a year of income support payments straight to private landlords and community housing landlords. So that's $15 billion a year that either could be spent on public housing or could be spent on giving us livable income support payments. And the final thing I would just say to, to illustrate um, this point is that if the government did what some people are calling for and doubled Commonwealth rent assistance, you would see some community housing providers go from currently maybe getting 150 a week rent to getting around 350 a week rent. That's because there's other settings at play there. Mm. Um, what you would see if we didn't do that is that 150 a week might go to like 200 a week, but welfare recipients would get a significant increase in our payment if instead of providing that figure in rent assistance, it was provided as a base rate increase. So that's why we say there is no welfare recipient who will be better off 
with a rent assistance increase compared to a base rate increase. Mm. And the other problem, of course, is that there are so many people who are renting, as well as people who have other housing costs, like rates if they're a homeowner or a mortgage, who don't get rent assistance and still can't afford housing. So, um, yeah, it's it's a complicated payment. It's a badly designed payment. It's landlord-friendly, and it doesn't help the people that those who advocate for it claim to want to help. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that's Probably a great... the last bit. That was a really good explanation. Um, I guess uh, that's all my all the questions I had. Was there, was there anything else you wanted to say? And also, if people wanting to uh, follow the Angie Poverty Centre's work or the work that you're doing, uh, where can they find that um, online? Yeah, I suppose the thing I'd like people to think about is that when you hear criticisms of um, ambitious policy proposals to think about it in a slightly more holistic way. People say you can't have a rent cap because standards will fall, and that's okay because we can just regulate to prevent standards falling, right? There's always a solution. So look for ambitious solutions and then find more ambitious solutions to solve any potential flaws. Um, People can visit our website, antipovertycentre.org, to learn more about us. Um, We're an organisation that is run by welfare recipients and people on low incomes to advocate for ourselves. Um, we run entirely on uh, crowdfunding and community donations, so if folks have something to spare, um, that's always welcome, but we know it's a cost-of-living crisis that's hitting people well up the income scale. Um, we're on social media on all the main platforms, and our handle is at AntipovertyCent, because that's the longest handle you can get on Twitter. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Kristen. Uh, if people want to read more about our coverage on Green Left, about these issues, you can head to greenleft.org.au. And if you could become a supporter, that's always very appreciated because we're just like the Anti-Poverty Centre run on kind of uh, people power um, and we need your support to continue doing this kind of work. Um, so you can either become a supporter for $5 a month or donate to our fighting fund at uh, greenleft.org.au slash support. Um, and thanks again, Kristen. It was great. Thanks, Isaac. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And we were just listening to a recorded interview with um, Kristen O'Connell. Um, and this interview um, was actually recorded by Green Left's Isaac Nellis. And um, you can actually find um, the video and the recording online at greenleft.org.au. So if you go under on, on greenleft.org.au <laughs> forward slash video, um, you can you can get um, you can get a link to the video. And of course, yeah, it's also um, there's we also have a, a range of other videos and interviews that you can um, listen to and watch. Now it is um, 8:05 a.m. and now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Um, so the first. Um, the first kind of event I want to sort of highlight is on Tuesday, September the 5th, um, there's going to be a public forum, Human Rights and the Palestine Laboratory in the Age of um, Surveillance. And that's going to be um, happening at uh, 6.30pm on Tuesday, September 5th at RMIT Building Level 2, Room 7, just right next to um, the Oxford Scholar um, Pub on 445 Swanson Street. Um, and then on um, Saturday, September the 9th, there's going to be a commemoration, um, five, 50 years since the coup in Chile, and that's going to be happening at 5pm at the MUA, 46 Island Street, West Melbourne. Um, and then on Monday, September the 11th, there's going to be a Chile coup uh, commemoration at 12 noon at the US Consulate, 553 five, 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 St Kilda Road in St Kilda. 
Um, and then um, there'll be another commemoration happening later that evening on um, com- um, Chile, 50 years of struggle and uh, solidarity and struggle at 6.30pm, the trades for 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. And that's actually been organised by, um, or organised by the LADSnet. And then on Tuesday, September the 20th, um, 12th, there's going to be um, Chile Solidarity Film Night at 6pm at the Catalyst Social Centre at uh, 114 to 146 Sydney Road in Coburg. Um, And then on Sunday, uh, September the 17th, there's going to be a rally, Accessible Shram Stops for Sydney Road at 1pm up the corner of Wilson Avenue and Sydney Road in Brunswick. Um, And then on Saturday, uh, September the 23rd, there's going to be uh, a Palestine eyewitness report and dinner. And that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Trades Hall, 127 um, Maya Street. Um, And that's actually going to be... um, That's actually with... um, with one of our regular guests on Green Left Radio, um, Sue Bull, who's actually been to Palestine recently, um, and so we'll probably actually we probably might do a bit of an inter- we might do a bit of an interview with um, Sue Bull to um, yeah to go and kind of hear uh, to hear a bit, a bit about that for a future program. Okay, well I'm just going to go um, I'll just go play a quick few announcements. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR eight five five AM. <laughs> 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and we're going to play a song called Igam Hilu Ham. I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's by various artists, but this is a cookie song about the ethnic violence faced by the Kukizo, and it was requested by Rebecca, who's from the Kukizo tribe. She's living here in Melbourne, and we'll be speaking to Rebecca after the song. She was saying that the composer of this song died recently as a casualty of the violence that's taking place in Manipur. Sun 
You're back on Green Left Radio, brought to you by 3CR, and you were just listening to a song called Igam Ilu Am, and it's by um, it's it's a cookie zo song, uh, and it was requested by Rebecca Lovehom, who is from the Cookie Zo tribe in Manipur, and has been living in Melbourne for a few. Months and she joins us now. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Uh, hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And good morning to all listeners. So, uh, Rebecca, Manipur, where, where you're from, is, is currently in the midst of extreme violence right now. And the cookies or minority are being targeted by Hindu extremist organizations in the northeastern Indian state of, of, of Manipur. Would you be able to tell our listeners about what's happening, the, the situation on the ground in, in Manipur right now? Uh, yes, Chloe. The situation on the ground right now is extremely um, terrible. There's still fresh violence and gunfires um, happening still, uh, especially on Wednesday. This Wednesday, there were four Kukizo volunteers who lost their lives, and it's so it's saddening because uh, until today it's been months and months, but the government can't take control of the violence. And one of them, the song we just played right now, um, the composer, the lyricist of the song, Mr. Ellis Mangboy Chungdim, he was one of the eminent cookie um, uh, song lyricists. It's it's a big loss for the Cookie Zo community because um, he was uh, he had to succumb to his injuries and he was um, while he was transferred to Isol uh, for better treatment because they couldn't take him to Imphal because of the situation and they they were not given uh, permission for chopper so they had to go by road crossed mountains you you could imagine how the hill uh, how the roads are in the hill district so he has to succumb to his injuries and uh, it's it's saddening because the kukizo community have lost more than 200 lives over 60000 people are displaced and more than 250 churches burned hundreds of villages are are being taught and still each going on and uh, the condition of the people in the relief camps are really pathetic because in the hill districts, it is mainly the local church and the NGOs who provide the basic needs. And maybe some uh, good Samaritans donate from other parts of the world. It isn't enough. So the lack of hygiene and poor conditions are being faced by them. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so the next kind of question, um, Rebecca, is can you give us a bit of a, a bit of a background of the Kukuzu people? And I mean, you can also draw on, draw on your experiences as a member of the Kuki tribe, and you know where and in in the city, and of course, where are you from in um, in Manipur? I'm from a small town in Kangpopi, which is in the hill districts of uh, Kangpopi district. So we live normally with the other communities, with the Meites, the Nagas. We live together. We don't have any uh, kind of issues until then. Now, um, it's um, it's the present government that 
uh, this side that that sided cookie zoo community you know for example if a cookie zoo uh, someone from the cookie zoo say some words or anything against uh, uh against uh, the or something that is not liked by the current chief minister so he will send some police offi- officials to arrest him and made him to apologize or uh, put him behind bars so but the same is isn't applied to the other community or the native community so this kind of um biasness or um uh, sidedness that he showed towards the cookie zoo community is being uh, i mean i would say it, it it is leading to the current situation right now so it's natural when one person or other community is sided the other per- person or community takes advantage and slowly the hatred develops and now that is the result of the current situation in manipur i would say that and the cookies those were classified on tri- st tribe so now the mate wants to be included under the st category so which is in like by the other tribal groups so that's what happened on 3rd may when all tribal organizations in manipur uh, they held a solidarity march it was not just the cookie zoo tribe it was just it was all tribal organizations but but they they targeted the cookies alone now so because they hate it because they don't like maybe so the violence erupted but the cookies those were the only targeted leaving out all other tribals the nagas or any other tribes so the state government didn't do anything to stop the violence and meanwhile when the violence erupted on 3rd may one mate guy he started circulating fake news in the social media that um one of the mate girls were being raped and killed in the chhatanpur district that's the hill district so but later on we the picture was faked because it he was the picture was taken from some other states in india not in manipur so eventually this fake picture or fake news trigger the mobs the mainly the arambai tengol and the maitele puns in the imphal valley and that's how they started laying hands on the kuki jo women and kill them or rape them or uh, paraded naked every kuki jo suburbs in imphal valley were burned down including the churches so the mobs were hunting for cookies in the universities hostels so they had to stop every car and check if the and check their IDs if the cookies those were in uh, uh, in there and if they were found so they were dragged out and beaten to death so this this fake news this fake news really triggered the people the mobs in the imphal valley meanwhile the state government and the police and the state police is their accomplice and meanwhile the state government sits silent and watch this and watch the sufferings we we didn't hear about any mate woman or uh, other woman being raped or killed or tortured by the cookie jo uh, men no so and the influx of refugees from myanmar is not as high as the number as they claim i was there in manipur till mid of uh, 2022 yeah. but what i heard was the state government tried to send them back tried to send the, the refugees back so most of the refugees were welcome in manipur that's what i heard much wasn't done for them i think so and the thing most of the and i think most of the refugees were tribals 
that's why they were not welcome in Manipur. If they were, uh, if they were Maitais or other communities, maybe they would have been welcomed. And um, that's my personal uh, thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the the refugees that had to flee across the borders to Manipur from Myanmar. Um, but Rebecca, can you also tell us a bit about the growing resistance or the resistance of the people of Manipur, you know, fighting against this hate campaign, particularly the women rising up against ethnic violence? Yeah, um, especially ever since uh, the the video of two women paraded naked broke out in the internet, many voices, especially women in India, are rising up against this uh, this um, um, uh, this incident. Uh, there has been women uh, protesting for women's rights and safety, especially right now what's happening uh, in Manipur. Uh, people came to know about this video. Um, uh, people came to know about this incident after the video went viral. But I came to know about this uh, incident already in the month of May after the incident uh, took place because the the victim's mother narrated the whole story in a in a in an audio clip, and it was not leaked out uh, much because of the internet uh, shutdown and blackouts of the internet. So. Yeah, and people from all over the world are start condemning this, this shameful incident. And uh, and the first time the PM of India, uh, the Prime Minister of India spoke about Manipur was until the the incident of this uh, uh, viral video. So until then he was uh, he didn't utter a word about Manipur. And I'm I'm glad that many voices, many human rights uh, organizations are doing its best fighting for the um, the victims of rape and assault. So and the CBI has started taking up the investigation. So that's that's a good that's a good news, I would say. Yeah. Mm. Um, thank you very much, Rebecca. I think this has been a very good um, interview, and I think you know it's very 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 important giving a voice to this um, to this struggle. And I guess um, we are kind of getting close to kind of wrapping up the program and. Um, I guess before we kind of wrap up, are there anything that you else you'd like to share with your with our listeners, especially in terms of any final comments or bringing attention to a petition or any upcoming events on how people can kind of stand in so, um, solidarity? Um, yes, there, there was a rally held on the steps of Victorian Parliament a couple of weeks ago. So I think there will be more uh, solidarity protests coming up. And I would request, like, um, listeners to join us in support of the victims in Manipur, especially the Kukijo community. Uh, they, uh, they are really in need of uh, support and uh, justice. And uh, if, if, if the people of uh, Australia could uh, show their solidarity and support, that would be very um, great, yeah. All right. Thank you very much, um, Rebecca. And um, I th- again, I think we'll, we'll continue to um, cover on our program on what's happening in, in Monopore and all the kind of current developments, but all the kind of sol- uh, all the solidarity to you and your community. Yeah, yeah. Just one thing: the sufferings like uh, are there on both sides, but the magnitude of the pain and the agony that the cookies all faced by losing lives and homes and humiliations. 
they it can't be fathom so it will take decades to mull it over so yeah hopefully peace and uh, justice prevail yeah thank you thank you rebecca for taking the time to come on our on our show thank you so much for having me thank you have a good day thank you okay um so well, we'll just um, we're just speaking to um Rebecca from um the um the Kukuzo tribe the, uh, the Kuki Kukizo tribe the Kukizo tribe in Manipur <laughs> um and yeah we're just being you know just hearing about her kind of direct kind of experiences um given the kind of impacts of you know what's been happening to the Kukuzo um tribe in Manipur and um yeah it's definitely something we want to sort of cover more um, in Green Left Radio, as um, as the as the situation um, develops, and you can find more about what's happening in Manipur in on the pages of Green Left. We've um, recently reported um, a team of activists recently went to Manipur, and we've got like a fact finding article that you can you can look up, which is quite good, um, as well as covering uh, the protest to save Manipur, which happened recently, as Rebecca told us about a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, there's more information there. So, yeah, please go to the website and, and look it up at greenleft.org.au. Okay. Um, I might just go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free Sky 855 AM. Oh, well, we all wake up early for this program. <coughs> so. to, yeah, we got it. Some of us have to get up at 4.30 to get here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been up since 4.20. Oh, so, all right. So, um, just want to go, we're getting to the end of our program, and I just want to kind of end by thanking all our listeners and guests who have been on our program this week. Um, I just want to make a note that we will be uploading this as a podcast on freecr.org.au so you can um, go listen back to it. But also, guys, want to make a bit of a plug that, you know, if you support the work that, you know, we're doing it um, in Green Left Radio and of Green Left, you can become a supporter of our project by going on greenleft.org.au forward slash support. Um, you know, one of the important sort of aspects of Green Left is that you do get to hear from the voices of, you know, activists on the ground and also of of the of the marginalised you, you who don't normally get a hearing at all in our corporate kind of driven media. The corporate media is all about the sort of experts, uh, the rich mm. and the powerful. Never is never interested in hearing from ordinary people. And, but Green Left is very much wants to be a platform for the oppressed who are, who are fighting against for a better world and against the capitalist system. 
Yeah, Green Left is a, a source of inspiration. It does give give hope to all of us who are oppressed, violated, forgotten. You know, especially in the midst of this housing crisis, people are um, struggling to actually, um, you know, carve out an existence. Uh, under capitalism, so it's a very anti-capitalist, anti-war paper. It was it started in 1991, I think 1991, um, and yeah, we you know we are we're trying to build the movements through the paper and and raise people's consciousness. So yeah, please please support us. I want to also thank our listeners for tuning in, and thank you to our guests Callum and Rebecca, and stay tuned for the next show left after breakfast this brings us to the end of the show you have been listening to friday morning breakfast with green left radio brought to you by green left weekly newspaper which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit if you like our work become a supporter from five dollars per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206 Arise you workers from the slumbers, arise you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions, serve all masses. Arise! We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that...